Thank you. Well, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 20. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1077. One thousand seventy-seven. John chapter twenty, beginning in verse one. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see 
in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on our message today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful passage of Scripture. This that changes everything. So, Lord, I ask you would help us to dwell on the hope that we find in it. And that we may be guided to a deeper understanding and love for you. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Really good news, and I mean really good news, is often hard to believe especially right in the moment in which you first hear it. If I were to tell you today that because each of you have come, each of you will receive $10 million at the conclusion of this service. If I was to tell you something like that, and, I was, and if I was actually being serious, it would probably take you a moment to even believe me that I was saying that. Perhaps you wouldn't believe me until you actually see the check in your hand. And even then, you might spend the next few hours grappling with what that means. All the debts that you could pay off. All the things you could finally get done around the house. Or all the people that you would finally be able to help by having this amount of money. It might take you even a few days to wrap your mind around an amount of that size. But if this is the expectation for us when it comes to a sum of money, I can only imagine how much longer it might take for us to wrap our head around the implications of someone rising from the dead. If I were to tell you a family member long gone was alive and well and wanted to see you, that would take even longer to get your mind around. And perhaps that might take years to fully wrap around the implications of that. $10 million is one thing. Yes, it's a large amount of money, but it doesn't bend the laws of nature in order for it to happen for you to receive it. But this does. This resurrection changes everything. So with all that in mind, I think we can cut the disciples a little bit of slack for not coming to faith immediately. Because this is something new. Yes, there have been miracles before. It's one thing to feed 5,000 people. Even some of the prophets from the Old Testament have raised people from the dead. But no one has ever raised himself from the dead before. That's new. And if we can think back to the ancient times, death was far more permanent to them than even we would think about death today. All of our medical marvels and technologies, we can pull people back from, from a brink not but 20 years ago would have been a death sentence. So I think we can cut the disciples a little bit of slack. 
And instead, I think we can focus on ourselves and ask, why doesn't this news affect us more deeply? So let's spend some time thinking about it. This passage confronts us with two very important realities that we're going to spend our time focusing on. And you can see what those points are in your bulletin on the back of the prayer guide, little insert there. The first point is that Jesus has conquered death. We're going to unfold what that means. But Jesus has conquered death. And then number two, Jesus can give you eternal life. So let's see how he has done this. Let's see how Jesus has conquered death. So here, in the beginning of our chapter, we see Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb. And the other gospel witnesses, there are other ladies that are coming to be a part of this. But for whatever reason, John, John tends to focus just on Mary here. And she's coming to prepare the body. At this time, they would have adorned the body with spices and perfumes in order to offset the smell of decomposition that was coming. It was a way of honoring the person who had died. This was something that would have been expensive. We can pick up perfumes and spices very easily, but this would have been something that would have cost quite a bit of money and would have been a real sacrifice to do. So Mary Magdalene is clearly expecting Jesus to be dead and to stay dead. So she comes up to this tomb, and we shouldn't be surprised that when she sees the stone that's been rolled away, that she would come to the conclusion that the body has been stolen. And why not? In a superstitious time a lot like our own, someone may have thought, well, Jesus has worked a lot of wonders. Maybe his body still has power. And if we can take this body, we can use it for our own purposes. Because after all, this actually happened to Elijah's bones in 2 Kings 13.21. Makes mention that there was a miracle that had happened with a dead body touching those bones. So if they could work through Elijah, why not Jesus? So I could imagine Mary Magdalene coming to this conclusion. It certainly would make more sense than to say someone has risen from the dead, even though that is exactly what Jesus said he would do. So Mary Magdalene runs to go tell the disciples. She finds Peter and John and tells them what she has seen. So they're run off to investigate. John was apparently a natural sprinter and gets to the tomb first, which he makes pains to mention. (laughs) This is his gospel after all, so why not? Holds this over Peter. He runs to the tomb, but stops and doesn't go in. Maybe he's a more cautious fellow, or perhaps he expected that maybe Mary was wrong and that there would be a dead body there. If he was to go and touch that dead body, according to the Old Testament, he'd be unclean for seven days, which would keep him out of the temple. So maybe he holds back, fearing that there is still going to be the body in there. Peter is less concerned about these things, and he just runs straight in to investigate. And what they find are linen cloths, which tells us that this is probably not a grave robbery. You wouldn't take time to unwrap a body from its linen cloths. You're in a hurry. you got to get in. you got to get out. Just take the body and the cloths with you. But instead, not only do we not even, we still see them here, but they're folded up. This is not a scene of chaos. This is a very orderly thing, almost casual in the way that Jesus has left the tomb. Here, one scholar points out that it's important to note the emphasis that John and other New Testament writers place upon the importance of the empty tomb. For them, the resurrection of Jesus was certainly not just spiritual survival after death. 
It involved a real resurrection of the body. And that's what they see. And John, for his part, at least at this point, seems to be the only one to understand the implications here. And it says that he saw and believed. Yet the rest of the disciples, at least in verse 9, haven't come to the understanding yet that Scripture has already foretold this to be the case. If you remember what we read in Isaiah 53, it talks about a servant being crushed, being put to death, but yet being given a portion with the many. It's anticipating that there would be a life after this sacrifice that's made. So they didn't understand this. Though one scholar points out this proves the disciples were not expecting it. So they're not making up the resurrection to fit with a prophecy they've already decided is the case. It was only after they've seen the resurrected Christ do they understand the scriptures and how that works. But in verse 10, the disciples go back home. Here we have seen death conquered. and The best we can do is go back to the house. I don't think they fully understand what's happened here. But they will in a moment. We'll come back to that a little later. For now, let's come back to Mary, who she's weeping outside of the tomb. Scholars point out that this word for weeping here is better translated wailing. She's grieving the loss of her Messiah, her Lord, her teacher. And now she doesn't even know where the body is. The ancients prized the body and didn't want to disrespect it. So this was a tragedy on top of a tragedy. That she sees. But then she's told by these angels and asking, Why are you weeping? And she says, I don't know where Jesus is. The other gospels go into greater detail about all the conversation that has taken place. But apparently, even after the angels saying that he's not here, he is risen, it still didn't quite sink in. Again, we are talking about the conquering of death here. So this is going to take a little bit to take in. And she turns around and she sees Jesus and still doesn't fully recognize him. Whether it be the earliness of the hour and the light hasn't arrived yet fully or perhaps the tears have obscured her vision, she's not able to recognize who Jesus is at the moment. And then Jesus says, why are you weeping? She gives him the same answer. And then he says, Mary. And for whatever reason, whether it was the way that he said it or the voice finally sunk in that it was Jesus, she recognizes him. And then she clings to him and then Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Really briefly, there's been some confusion just about what this verse means, but as near as Scholars can tell the way that Jesus is doing something is he's not saying, don't start by touching me. What he is doing likely is Mary has reached out and grabbed him and he is saying, okay, you don't have to hold on that tightly. She probably feared of losing him again. This would be a natural thing to think. And what he is assuring her is, yes, I am going to ascend to my father as I said that I would, but not right now. You've got some time. I'll be right here when you get back. But go and let my disciples know that I have risen from the dead. Other scholars point out that what Jesus is possibly doing here is reminding them that he's not always going to physically be there. That he is going to ascend to heaven. 
But as we'll see towards the end of this chapter, he's going to give us a little parting gift, as we'll see. As we go on and look at the rest of the disciples' reactions, none of the rest of them believe without seeing him first, which is why we should probably cut Thomas a little bit of slack, poor guy, known as Thomas the Doubter, all the way through. He has a cliche named after him, all because he wasn't there at evening service that night. Spurgeon says many people have missed blessings on Sunday evening, and Thomas is one of them. But here what we see when it comes to Jesus rising from the dead, there have been some to have said, it's like, well, Jesus didn't really physically rise from the dead. This was probably just some hallucination. The disciples just so wanted Jesus to be risen from the dead that they all had the same sort of imaginative flight of fancy and saw him. But that's not what we see here in the scriptural record. In fact, one commentator put it this way. As Thomas makes abundantly clear, the appearances were not at first welcomed. They were resisted as idle talk. And those who have not actually seen Christ for themselves refused point blank to accept the stories. Only the plainest of evidence could have convinced a skeptic like Thomas. But convinced he was which shows us that the evidence was incontrovertible. This is what Thomas has here. When he says that I will never believe, the language that he uses there is two negatives, which is a way of really emphasizing what you're saying, which Thomas is basically saying, I will never, ever believe that Jesus has risen from the dead unless I can touch him. Even seeing wasn't believing for Thomas. He had to actually put his hands in there. He knows what a spirit can look like. He wants to make sure it's really flesh. And sure enough, Jesus shows up again, eight days later. And now Thomas gets his opportunity. And notice Jesus already knows what Thomas wants. Before Thomas even asks, he says, you want to put your finger in my hand? Want to put your hand in my side, Thomas? Apparently Thomas doesn't even need to take him up on the offer. But instead, he says with conviction, my Lord and my God. One commentator put it this way. He says, the early Christians did not believe in the resurrection of Christ because they could not find his dead body. They believed because they did find a living Christ. This is what Thomas found. And this is why he believes Now, why is it so important that we emphasize this? Theologians in the years after this have tried to make this seem a little less fantastic, a little less miraculous, and say, perhaps we've gotten a bit carried away with this whole physical resurrection thing. It's not really important. What we really just need to know, all the core message that we find is that there is an approval for self-sacrifice. That there can be an inspirational life that follows from a great event. And that's what they try to make the resurrection to be. One of mere metaphor. Is that enough? Or does Jesus have to be physically raised? I would submit he does have to be physically raised. One, because that's what the Bible says. This is a fact of history. If it's not, then this is just another fanciful tale. And you can put the Bible in the same pile with all the rest of religious and philosophical literature. 
But if Jesus rises from the dead, everything changes. How? Let's take a look. Let's start theologically. Jesus has to be raised from the grave. Otherwise, we have a huge hole in our faith. And in fact, Paul, the apostle, writing a few decades after the fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, wrestles with that exact question. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. What is Paul saying here? If Christ hasn't been risen from the dead, your sins are not forgiven. Why is that? Well, in another place, Paul recognizes in Romans, it says that the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? A wage is a payment. It's what you earn. When you go to work, what do you earn your wages in? Money, U.S. dollars. So what is the wage that you earn when you sin? It's death. This is what... We are facing. And it's not just a physical death, a one time falling down and going into the grave, but it's an eternal death. It's a spiritual death as well. You are not just a body animated by some chemicals and electricity, you're a soul as well. And when you die, if you're not in Christ, you die spiritually as well, which is going to a place of eternal conscious torment. This is what death means for us. That's the payment for our sin. And it goes on forever. We have a lot of sin and we have offended an eternally holy God. It's not just the fact it's like, well, it was just a little sin. It's like, it doesn't matter. It was a big person you offended. This is what we would be waiting for. But Jesus dies in your place. Now, how do we know that he has paid all of that death debt? Well, he's not dead anymore. The same way you know, how do you know that a prisoner has served out his prison sentence? He's out of the cell. It's the same thing with Jesus. How do you know he's used up and paid up all of that death? Because he's out of the grave. Death couldn't hold him anymore. Death is no longer permanent. Because you may respond and say, no, wait a minute. I thought if Jesus pays all the death, then why do Christians still die? We still die physically. That's true, but we don't die spiritually. And what's great is your physical death isn't even permanent either. That's why in the biblical narrative that when they see people die, they talk about sleep. Because you're going to awake one day. They talk about rest. Because one day you will be physically raised again. And in fact, that's the promise that we see spelled out for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter four says in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And in fact, in a later passage, a very famous one, first Corinthians 15, 55, it says that death no longer has a sting. Doesn't say death doesn't exist anymore, although that day is coming too. We can talk about that in a minute. But for now, death no longer has a sting. It's no longer permanent. That changes everything. Absolutely everything. This proves that 
Jesus is someone quite different, isn't he? We've got a whole litany of people with a theory of life. But only one person was able to beat death. And that was Jesus himself. So what does that imply? Let's walk through that. If Jesus has risen from the dead, I have been saying multiple times, this changes everything. What does it change? Let's think about this together. I thought of three implications. There are many, many more. But if Jesus rises from the dead, then that means that he is in control and is the Lord of the one certainty we have in life, which is death. You can actually avoid taxes. You'll go to jail. And you won't have to pay taxes there either. But you will die. That much is certain. I was reading an article a few weeks ago that made the great claim that within a decade, this futurist estimates, that we will have figured out the secret to immortality. Nanotechnology will have come so far along that we'll be able to inject our body with robots that will keep us alive and repair us as we go along, leading to immortality. Now, I highly doubt that, considering I still have a hard time getting a cell phone signal in my office. (laughs) But even if that's true, everything is going to die. Because of our sin, the death-dealing effects of that have extended to the whole of creation. Scientists estimate that one day our sun is going to die. It'll take a few billion years, but it's going to happen. Will expand to the point where it engulfs Earth itself. I don't know of any nanobot that can protect you from that. So even if you can buy yourself a few more billion years, eventually we will still face death. And even if we make this scientific advancement, it doesn't give hope to the people that have already died. But here at this point, if Jesus rises from the dead, that means he controls death. So that means we don't have to be afraid because Jesus is also really good. Jesus loves you and has beaten your ultimate enemy, the one you can't get away from. So that means you don't have to be afraid anymore if you're in Christ. You don't have to run away from this enemy forever. Doesn't mean we have to run towards it, but we don't have to be afraid anymore because it's no longer permanent because someone rules over death and his name is Jesus. Second implication, if death is not permanent, then that means there's life after it. And that means that the life after it is a lot more important than this one. So we better do some thinking. We better figure out how to get to know this Lord over death. Because if he rules over death, guess what? He rules over life as well. If you control the end, you can control everything else that goes along with it. And then thirdly, If Jesus is the one who has defeated death, I only know of one being in the world that can do that. That must mean that he is Lord and God, as Thomas has so memorably put it. So we do well to learn how we can know him better. And what's great, as we move into our second point, we round the corner to a close. We see this is exactly why John has written this gospel for us. Do you notice there at the end? In John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
What does this mean? What does it mean to have faith in Christ? It's easy here in the South that has absorbed a lot of Christianity in its culture to throw around a lot of different words like saved, faith, and believing. And we all know what those things mean until someone asks us to define them. And then all of a sudden, all the sense leaves our minds and we're not able to figure out what we mean by these things anymore. So let's go over some definitions. Let's think about what this means. There is one scholar that was particularly helpful. I commend him to you. His name is Leon Morris. He's an Australian scholar who writes very accessibly. I would commend his works to you. But he puts it this way. What's faith? Faith, for John here, is an activity which takes man right out of themselves and makes them one with Christ. He continues, John does not think of faith as a vague trust, but it's something with content. Faith means believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-expected one, and that he is the Son of God. What is he saying here? Faith is not just some fuzzy feeling that gets you through the day. But faith has a definable content. And it's two things. That Jesus has been the hope that we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. And that he is the son of God himself. As he continues here, when when it's talking about believing in Jesus, notice that word in Jesus. This is not just believing Jesus. Saying it's like, oh, okay, you say you're the son of God, you do all these miracles, and you can take me to heaven? Cool. I believe that you think that. That's not faith in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is more than simple credence, as he continues to say. It's not believing that what he says is true, but trusting him as a person. It's putting the whole weight of your eternal expectations on him. This means that when you approach death, when that day finally comes for you, and it will come for us all, it looks at it with confidence and says, Jesus is going to be the one to bring me through this. Jesus is going to be the one that's going to deliver me from eternal death. It's not going to be anything I did. It's going to be everything that Jesus did. Contrary to popular thought, you don't make your bad deeds disappear because you did good stuff. If someone is on trial for murder, bringing up the fact that they have helped old ladies cross the street does nothing about their case. Doesn't change the fact that they're a murderer. And the same thing is true for you and I. My doing nice things does not erase my lies. It's not erase my thefts. Doesn't erase my lusts. All those things are still there. All those things will have to be paid for myself or... I can trust in Christ. I can take him up on his offer that says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. Not come and I'll show you how to work this plow. It says, I've already plowed the field for you. I've made the way because I am the way, the truth and the life. This is what Jesus offers to you. So where are you today in this list? Do you see yourself more like Mary, who when she sees Jesus calls him a great teacher? He says, Jesus says some good things, but hasn't fully grasped the implications of all that Jesus has done. Are you there? Maybe you're with Thomas, 
And I'm saying all these things sound great, but I'm going to need a lot more proof before I commit my whole life to Jesus. Where are you with John? You've seen and you believed. Where are you with this today? As we've seen, Jesus can find and convince you, no matter where you are. No matter how much proof you need, Jesus can provide it for you. So if you're here today and saying, I am a sinner. I need Jesus. I can't make it on my own. Then it is my absolute pleasure to speak on behalf of Christ to come and be found by him. Be united to Jesus today. You don't have to go back and try to fix up your life and say, well, let me make myself acceptable to Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to help you. Jesus wants to change you. And he will. So come to him and ask. Ask for that faith to believe on him and in him. Ask him to come and change you. And he will. You may say, Pastor, I've been down this road a number of times. I was in church for a long time. I made a lot of mistakes and I've left. This stuff didn't work for me. Well, are you weary and heavy laden? Maybe you needed a few more times in the ditch to realize you couldn't make it on your own. Come back. Come to Christ. Beg of his help. And he will give it. He's not stingy. He's not, had him have, he doesn't have his arms crossed and his eyes narrowed looking at you, wondering when you're finally going to get your act together. That's not who Jesus is. He's a merciful Messiah who looks at you with love and says, my child, come home. My arms are open to you. And that is his offer to you today. Be found by Jesus. Enjoy the benefits to know that death is not the end. Find the hope that I have found, that these disciples have found that hope that lives in Jesus. If you don't know where you stand today and say, Pastor, I don't know anything about this. I need some help. Well, then I would love to talk with you. Come see me after the service. Or if you say, Pastor, I got to get to lunch. All right, well, then let's make an appointment. Talk in my office. Nothing would thrill me more than to introduce you to this Savior because he is so, so good and loves you so, so much. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have had together. Lord, I pray that if there are any who are here who don't know you, who don't have a relationship with you, that you would get a hold of their hearts today, that they would find that rest that you offer to them, that hope that exists beyond the grave. Oh, I pray that you would give them that today, that they would let nothing stop them from knowing that where they stand with you today. Oh, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.